0: Cavalcade Audio Productions presents *Star Drifter*, the science fiction audio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book three, Risk Analysis, Chapter Twenty Four. A youngish woman in a suit, sitting on the Montero side like me, perked up quickly with We object to the use of the word abscond. It implies that a Montero employee was engaged in some sort of pilfering or theft, which we have already stated was not the case. He was found in control of a starship over which he had no legal right. A fleet officer, who hadn't spoken yet, countered. The charge would be piracy. That falls under a different category entirely. International space law places piracy above nearly all other transgressions. In my book, using the word abscond is a kindness. This seemed to take the wind out of the corporate solicitor's sails for a moment, but she rallied with, If such a crime did occur, it did not do so within the established borders of your nation. As a signatory of the Mapledown Pact, which covers the exact laws you seem fond of referencing, the Montero Group is more than capable of investigating any alleged acts of piracy and taking the appropriate actions. Admiral Dussain had a furrowed brow and looked mighty piqued about the entire conversation. What do you people want? she asked after a long silence. We want our employee released from custody. This man is not under arrest, The same officer, who seemed to see me with a peg-leg and a parrot, clarified. But he is not free to leave, is he? The thin guy responded. We have a few more questions, the fleet guy admitted. Nothing that can't wait, certainly. And now that we have our property back... Yes, and let's talk about that property, the senior officer interrupted, tenting her fingers. Let's not, I injected flatly. Once more, the woman turned her green eyes on me, cat-like. That kind of approach is in no one's interest, least of all fleet's. And I can take your word for that? You've been privy to the kind of information and have had the sort of training to be able to make that call? Yes to both questions, actually, which it should reveal in my profile that you have hanging in front of you. Ma'am? You don't know a single thing about fleet's interests. The woman handed back, her expression and tone of voice unchanged. I know that someone back in the Alliance has been a black-budget investor in this project all along, I replied. If it isn't Fleet, then it's another group with quality information and deep pockets. That list is mighty short. We had a game coming up. Not just a practice, but an actual competition within the Station League. And despite everything, I felt obligated to play. Because of everything, I felt obligated to win. Something was going to go right with this mission if it killed me. This wasn't stubbornness or even an excess of immaturity. It was just me being sick and tired of acting recklessly and reacting late. I understood the basic rules of smackball and understood the need for overt plans and team cohesion. It made sense and it was real. The realest thing in my life now. In R&D, we were putting the finishing touches on a proposal to include WMD enabled missiles into the free jump fighter. Since it was a military ship, Access to such would be no problem for them, so we figured, why not? We didn't expect Team to go for it, but they'd sit up and take notice. Our real goal was to get Mass Effect weaponry included in the official documentation for the vessel as a registered addendum. It would show that Milag Vernier in general, and the Weaponry Sub-D in particular, was thinking big. It would make our part of the project flash... And we could use some flash. I had replied to Melbrot's office that I was declining the position. I was told to expect a certified letter from legal explaining that I was in breach of contract and what I could expect from them as a response. Two days passed, but nothing came, indicating they had finally discovered that I was no longer under contract with admin security or anyone else on station, and were now scrambling to look for options. In the meantime, Floyd, Gaza, and even Jake put in for a special letter of recognition, which was a civic, professional, and rather big-deal kind of corporate space thing, apparently, singing my praises for the work in research and development. They even used language like motivator and indispensable. An award nomination like this was circulated through channels as a matter of course, so Amanda Caselier called Floyd and tried to pull rank to get me fired. Floyd told her that if counter-espionage wanted to move forward with it, then R&D would have no choice but to summon an interdepartmental conflict resolution committee hearing, which would require company negotiators to be brought in from out-system. That would open the thing up to even more strangers and alert the BOD that there was trouble in paradise. Counter-E wanted me where they could watch me, but as departments went... R&D was hard for them to run operations out of since it already enjoyed the highest level of security on the station. Most of the undercover operatives the military had at their disposal weren't cleared to even enter the place. Worse yet, they had no proof I was anything other than what I said, so they couldn't override the wishes of R&D management without justifying it. In the end... I stopped by Cassellier's office unannounced. And boy, was that an instant way to piss her off. I proposed a compromise. I'd continue as I had up until then, working for both R&D and ADSEC. Since it was up to me how to run my own office, I could make my own hours as well. She stated plainly that I couldn't do both jobs adequately. I stated plainly that a recently-bagged bogey and recently-posted letter of recognition proved otherwise. The Nine didn't like you from the start, Mr. DeSantos, she warned. He's going to hate you now. You'll have a lot to prove. I didn't expect to be around long enough for anyone to need much proof of anything, so I just lied and said I would work hard to get in his good graces. Later, while I was walking home, I called Shady Lady and got an update. Dieter's cooking along, Christmas said, with a smile in my eye view. He thinks we can be ready to leave in no more than two weeks. That works out because we have just over four weeks of life support left. We'll have to go into the freeze right away just as soon as we're off or else we'll run out of air on the trip back. Any progress with Mavis? John has been working on nothing else. He has an idea of the cause, but doesn't have a fix for it yet. I've been reading up on cybernetics myself, I told him, taking a chance. We could do a complete system reset. I think I know how to do that now. If the problem isn't in her neurolytic startup routine, it should be cleared away with a full shutdown and restart. That would wipe most of her memory and a lot of her skills. Aside from how catastrophic that would be for her personally, it would leave us in no better shape. She'd be unable to fly the ship. I understand you can. In a pinch, maybe, he replied, completely unfazed by my knowledge of his skills. But it'll take more than I can do. Even she might not be able to manage it now with the military here, especially if she forgets how to fly entirely. It should be fine, I assured him. Mavis has local backups for all mission-critical information, like piloting and such. Her short-term memory is still bio-captured, so that should be safe. And I know she's got copies of all her long-term memories in storage back home. She might lose some stuff, but nothing she couldn't live without. You'd make that call for her? he demanded, sounding disturbed by the thought of it. Actually, it doesn't surprise me that you would. You've made lots of calls for this crew since we arrived. Add it to your report. I'm just saying that we have the option if all others fail. And so far, our other options have amounted to exactly zero. We're out of time. To show you I'm not the stubborn jerk you think I am, I'll leave the decision in your hands. You probably shouldn't mention it to the others, though, unless you want to spend the last two weeks here debating the issue. (sighs) I surely don't, he confirmed, looking exasperated. Indeed, he looked to be at his wit's end, a condition I'd never yet witnessed in him, except when mad at me. The crew is barely functioning as it is. I get to go out and stretch my legs from time to time, but Steena's gotten almost as unresponsive as Mavis. I had to order her to take a shower the other day. She was really ripe. And even then she wouldn't go until I threatened to stick her back in the freeze. On the other side, John has gotten aggressive about some really weird things. He almost punched out Dieter for using the red drinking cup that sits on top of the Vosserman dispenser, you know the one? Uh, with the spiral patterns on it? Yeah. Is it his private property now? (laughs) He seems to think so. He never uses it, but no one else is allowed to eat her. Since it's just a stupid cup, we never pushed him on it. Then Data came back and didn't know about the taboo. It was a shock for him, seeing this level of cabin fever. Ejock, we have got to get out of here. Soon, Chris, I promise. The two of us may have had our problems, but I've never lied to you. Everything I've done out here has been to get us back home safe and sound. I believe you. I have to. "'Frankly, I've been thinking lately that you were right all along. "'If our escape efforts go south and team somehow doesn't kill us, "'our only hope is in the fact that we never stole their tech.' "'I had made my way over to the coffee kiosk again without even noticing. "'I ordered my usual, listening to Chris and scanning for anyone following. "'That was a waste of time and worry.' because if Team really had put a tail on me, it wouldn't be composed of absent-minded amateurs like their target. Hey, here's a job for Stina to keep her mind active, I proposed when I had a cup in my hand. Think she could run a background algorithm on the people around me as I moved through the station to see if there are any matching patterns? You're being followed? He looked even more concerned of a sudden. I don't know, but I could use some peace of mind. I'll see what we can do, he offered, and then said goodbye. I got some work done in weaponry during midshift, helping to break through a nasty foul up with one of the control interfaces. Actually, one of the young officers made the breakthrough there, but I got her looking in the right direction. While we were focused on that, some guy came over from a Sub-D I'd never worked directly with before. Piloting controls. Neither Floyd nor Gaz were around, so this little off outranked all our people. He started giving us extremely angry orders about what we had to do to integrate our system into theirs, because he'd had enough of our crap, see? Apparently his group wanted the pilot to be able to take over gunnery in an emergency, and nothing we were putting together could get emulated on their hardware. He shouted and accused us of some really ridiculous stuff, even slapping the table a couple of times and causing our Tri-D image to wink out. He threatened the others with unrelated military violations and acted like a near-mental case. While he was sounding off, I called Team Security posted in R&D, quietly on my ring. A couple of big, burly characters came hopping by in riot gear and grabbed the guy by the shoulders while he was in mid-tirade. To say that he was flabbergasted would be an understatement. Who do you think you are, Sivvy? He demanded, after I identified myself to the responding guards as the one who made the call. I ignored him and just told them he had burst into our office acting irrationally. We didn't know who he was, never saw him before, which was true. They hauled the man off, purple-faced and spluttering, and our group laughed and whistled when he was probably not quite out of earshot. I looked into the guy's situation later on, and learned that transfer orders were already in place for him. My group clapped me on the back more than once because of this, and after word got out... Fueled, no doubt, by rumors of my new status aboard station, Weaponry never had a serious conflict with another Sub-D again. They even started replying to our memos in a timely fashion. That felt good, but it only lasted until the end of the shift. The Vipers had a game that night, and I was now a Viper. Despite everything going on in my life, this actually had me worked up. We're going to go out there and play our best, Barney assured, in his quiet, gentle manner, and I really felt like we could. Alaki never acted weird or upset about my having left that party with another woman. I had no idea what, if anything, anyone knew about what I was doing for a living now, but if it bothered her at all, she never showed it at practice or at the pub. At some point in the previous few days, Tippin' wondered aloud where that big gal went. Layden had been a fixture of samples since he'd come aboard station, and her absence was felt. No one knew, of course, not even the bartender, and certainly not me. As we stepped out onto the court from the central lift, Elaki gave me a squeeze of the arm. Just have fun, EJock. Her smile was bright and genuine, and I was grateful for it. We were randomly assigned the green and filed over to our side. The life-support lightning was already waiting for us on the blue side. I had starboard guard position, while Barney as captain had center. Alaki was on quater, Tip was our anchor, and Fanny had port guard. The others were downstairs in the changing room, waiting as relief players. My stamina was still crap, so they wouldn't be waiting long. The plug was disallowed for this game, amateur league rules forbade it, which meant the artificial gravity along its surface was off, though it still hung in the center of the court to act as a line-of-sight impediment. The Vernier Vipers was the lower-ranked team, so we got to pitch first. Barney gave the honor to a lockie, who looked directly at the lightning anchor, then spun low and sent it screaming over the hemi on port side. The other team's center must have smacked it off. I couldn't see because of the plug, as it came back at us immediately from a completely different angle. I made a dash, but was slow. Barney scooped it up behind me, then lobbed it through the air to Tip, who caught it easily. He pivoted on his heel while bending down, zipping it along the floor back our way, over to Fanny still standing in the quater nook. She rolled it over the lines right there where they were close, making the nook shot. The floor pulsed green once, while a deep chime sounded like from a muffled gong announcing our point. The lightning settled in after that, realizing we'd been practicing. My counterpart over the line was a tall woman, taller than me, and she eyed her opposite number with competitive stiffness, mouth set in a frown, eyes narrowed. I just tried to follow the ball, which wasn't always easy. Since we had made the point, they got the next pitch, delivered by their port guard. Fanny smacked it off, and it screamed along the floor up behind the plug. Their anchor dashed over and smacked it wildly as it slowly rolled back at us. It came over fast then, and in a weird trajectory. I ran and dove, smacking it myself back across the line. The tall woman caught it, then passed it off to someone else on her side. I was flat on the deck and couldn't have blocked a countershot if I'd wanted to, but none came, so they must have had a strategy. What that was became apparent in the next second, when their anchor, looking to me like he was standing perpendicularly on the sphere wall, scooped the ball up from somewhere behind that darned plug and did a wicked wind-up. He sent it dashing past Tip on our side and well out of Barney's reach. It went between Fanny's legs. She twisted and fell down trying to catch it and rolled back to their side. The lightning port caught it with a solid cathop, and the chimes sounded while the floor pulsed blue. I got a chance to pitch then and scooted the ball along the floor out of reach of the tall woman. It must have been caught by their center because it came back at us along an oblique line after only a second or so and moving very fast. Barney went for the smack and missed. It rocketed behind him along the floor. But Alaki dashed, then rolled head over heels, coming up with it in her basket. She snapped it off past both their anchor and port guards, who had nearly collided trying to block the shot. I heard shouting and the squeak of sport shoes on the deck as others ran to catch it over there, beyond the plug. It cruised back into sight, and I lined up to catch it and make the point when it came over the line. The tall woman dove, though, and was just able to tap it lightly. It still rolled toward me, but at a slightly different angle, coming fast at my right. I put out a foot to stop it, a move both legal and painful. It bounced off my instep, up into the air, and I caught it with the scoop. The woman's little tap turned out to be enough for the sensor-enabled AI referee to count as intentional control of the ball, because we didn't get a point for my pain. I lobbed the ball to Barney, limping a step, and he caught it easily, then shot it along the floor fast, right back the way it had come, past my tall counterpart. She yelped in surprise, running and bending for it, swinging for a smack, but stepped over the hemi line. A penalty ding sounded while the floor stutter pulsed green. She cursed and jumped back to her spot like the floor was electrified. Someone else over there had caught the ball and pitched it. Barney scooped it up and passed it to a lockie, who passed it to me. I feigned a shot to my left. Barney had had us practicing feints in the time running up to this game, then rolled the ball hard off to my right. Their anchor smacked it back, but a lockie caught it immediately and rolled it to Fanny. She stepped to the side as it went by, smacking hard. The ball continued in more or less the same direction, but at a wicked speed, and their port guard missed it completely. It blasted right by them all and screamed along the inside of the sphere until it came into view again on the other side of the plug. It rolled by my counterpart more than a meter beyond her reach. I couldn't make it in time either when it crossed the hemi line again, but Barney had lined up for the catch behind me. He scooped it up to a chime and green flash. It was a strong start for the Vipers, and we maintained our lead for a while. Eventually, we began to lose ground. Part of that was from my flagging energy... All that darned scobble, for sure. And part of it was from the increased use of strategic pitches on the part of the Lightning. I eventually gave up my place on the court to Lili, who helped keep up the pressure. We lost the game, but the final score was close. Far closer than any time the two teams had faced off in the past. The life support Lightning played very well, so it made them look at the Vipers differently, you can be sure. It had been a lot of fun. I came back up to the court when the buzzer sounded to shake hands and slap backs and all that. "'How's your foot?' the tall woman asked when I congratulated her. She was still puffing hard from the final play of the game, and sweat poured off her brow. "'It'll be purple by morning,' I predicted, and she laughed, not a trace of the aggressive spirit displayed just minutes before." They opened the back room in the pub for us as both teams retired there to hoot and holler and drink and brag. There was a new waiter, new to me anyway. He turned on the lights and got us all wrangled like a pro. Layden might have been gone, but the need to service the party never stopped. Hanging out with Floyd became kind of a thing over the next week or so. We'd be our usual selves in R&D, where in point of fact she didn't make many appearances due to her various other responsibilities, but we had dinner at my place once, takeout, I can't cook, and went for a long walk later in the week. The night of the walk... She pulled me behind a tall anchor block for one of the sweeping support cables out near a quiet observation lounge and kissed me. She was dressed in a plain tunic top and slacks and had teased out her slick back hair into a wild shag. She looked very nice and felt even better. I kissed her back but didn't ramp it up. It seemed to be the right approach, emotionally, and an even better one, trouble-wise. We found a bench and sat down, leaning against each other, watching the stars through the lounge's large shield-glass window. Dieter called then. I got up and moved off a few steps. "'We have a problem,' he stated without preliminary, looking and sounding quite serious. There's a print defect in the plasma flow chamber of the new transfer unit. I didn't know we'd gotten one of those. The propagators aren't to spec for us, he explained, looking hungover and annoyed at the same time. They have to have their own transfer unit. It was part of the package you delivered. How bad is it? I asked into my fist. Bad enough. It'll burst if we put it under stress. I can't retool anything up here. That requires a machine shop. And we have no time to have another unit printed and delivered. We'll be dead from asphyxiation before it comes up in the fabrication queue. What can I do to help? I think I can make an inner sleeve to contain the flow during use, but I need about two square meters of nanoparticulate sheeting and a tube of molecular binder. No, make that two tubes. I used all mine up. I looked back at Floyd, who watched patiently. To her, this was an admin security thing, and she gave me space. I'll get them to you by early first shift. In my eye view, he nodded grimly, said thanks, and closed the line. Do you have to go? the seven asked when I came back. I'm sorry, it's important. Okay, she smiled, then kissed me again, quickly this time, like a peck, before walking off. See you tomorrow. Nanopart sheeting was a standard material used in hull repairs. It was unbelievably strong, but fairly flexible, so it could be cut to size with a normal parting tool. It was placed over punctures or wrapped around damaged support beams or other equipment. It was then often covered in a permanent coating of polinium glaze, a process known as plasterizing for no apparent reason. I'd seen old boats and ships that seemed to be held together solely by plasterized patching, so it was reliable enough. The sheeting could certainly hold a plasma chamber together even without polinium, but only if it was securely attached. This was where the binding cement came in, bonding the nanoparticles of the sheet to the metal of the chamber at the molecular level. After gluing, the sheets would become part of the plasma chamber itself, and would be able to hold it all in place, despite the excessive pressures exerted by a fusion reactor's magnetic bottle. R&D had both these items, I was sure, but they would be stored within the domain of hull design, and those guys were a bunch of weenies. I'd have to make some plausible excuse or other than talk to this foreman and that project director and then to a warehouse supervisor who would invariably be off-duty at the time. And it would have to be checked and rechecked anyway as a valid pass request by the Team Johnnies on duty. No, the sheeting and cement would have to come from somewhere else, and the station's hub seemed like a good candidate. Workers up there would be certain to have that kind of material available since minor ship repairs as well as patching the station's hull from micrometeorite damage and the like were all part and parcel of their jobs. I took a deep breath, then climbed aboard an elevator at the bank where Pillar 4 met the wheel of the station. Spoke Plaza had been closer, but I'd stayed on the tram. The ride up took a few minutes, because it seemed to stop at nearly every floor in the pillar, but eventually the doors opened upon the massive space of Milag Vernier's hub. It was a busy place, and noisy too. Team guards near the elevator were verifying eye dents, and I waited patiently while they checked mine. My admin security status was now showing prominently in the system, and it seemed to have some heft. Ah, very good, sir. Can I direct you somewhere? Maybe. Do you know where the supply manager's office is up here? The young woman didn't, but she called someone who did. She checked a map, then pointed at a cluster of storage units several hundred meters above our heads. Rectangular buildings appearing to hang down from the roof of the place. She did me the courtesy of summoning a team automated roller, and I cruised over in style. Scoring the nanopart was easy. They had kilometers of the stuff, in tall rolls, extending up to the storeroom ceiling like tree trunks. The manager on duty had no problem with clipping me off a few meters of the fabric, and even found a bag to put it in. I didn't have to offer an explanation. Being ADSEC was good enough. The molecular binder, though, was harder. When the supply chain started back up upon Team's invasion, apparently one glaring exception had been this exact type of cement. It was annoying everybody, and a special emergency shipment of it was already inbound from the jump point, but that wouldn't arrive until next week. Yeah, see, this is kind of urgent, I told the guy. You don't happen to have a few tubes stashed away somewhere, do you? Well, and the guy shook his head. There is a small supply put by, but we need it for emergency repairs. If this station gets a hull puncture, we absolutely have to have this stuff on hand. I see. Do you think a bottle of certified Greenbelt Scotch could help you folks be even better prepared? It's been known to make all the difference, he replied without skipping a beat. The roller was still there when I came out, so I had it run me over to one of the other elevators. I told it to wait. Back down in the station proper, I dashed to the closest rec drug kiosk listed in the station directory and bought a liter bottle of Roberta Batewell five-year-old. Auntie Bob, as it was often called, was, hands down, the most popular liquor among stationers. This was mostly due to a brilliant distribution strategy implemented over a century before by the company's founders, way over on Savannah Station, an artificial superfarm in solar orbit around the Greenbelt system's yellow primary. It had been a business plan so aggressive and successful that the basic principles were sometimes taught in military colleges as an example of flawless campaign execution. No matter where you went in the galaxy, you could always find Auntie Bob in stock, including within many booze-free dry systems over in church space, if you knew who to ask. The fact that it was a solid mid-shelf whiskey kept it popular, lo these many years later, and my supply guy was only too happy to part with a couple tubes of glue that weren't his to begin with in exchange for a bottle of the pretty good stuff. Then it was a stop by the closet where I hooked the bag of repair supplies to the ascending cable, closed up the vent, and called Shady Lady to let Dieter know his stuff was ready for pickup. (laughs) It was easy. I just walked away. How had it gotten so easy? I hadn't needed help. I hadn't even needed a lookout. I could be evasive to a friend, or whatever Floy and I were becoming. I could track down obscure materials. I could pass through guard details. I could bribe people. I could transfer packages to hidden comrades. I could keep secrets. So many secrets. And none of it was hard. I had trouble remembering a time when it was. Once again, the need to leave this place surged up, and I had to lean on a bulkhead to catch my breath. I looked around at the clean, bright station and the clean, bright people who walked by, busy with their tasks and lives. Nothing in sight was familiar. The offices, the shops, the facilities were all weird. And knew. Not one thing I laid my darting eyes upon looked mundane. For a long moment, half in panic, I didn't know where I was, what this place was, or maybe it was me I didn't recognize. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called iCore by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for risk analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.